You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. We are in our final week in our study of James. I got to be honest, let me just be straight up with you. Our scriptural journal approach to studying has actually been super beneficial for me as I like think through this and prepare sermons on Wednesday. I got to read through um, our reading today and hear from my brothers about what they're hearing. It's just been such a helpful thing for me. And it feels kind of like cheating. Um, but to have like other voices speaking in, it's not cheating at all, but it's so wonderful. And I hope that in your table groups and in your family lives and anything that any kind of small community you can find of other res folks to study scripture together is such a gift. I want to encourage you, would you find that place uh, where you can sit down with friends, other Christian brothers and sisters and study the word of God together? Um, looking forward, we're starting a, se- a sermon series in Hebrew beginning next week, and we have uh, more Hebrew scripture journals for you. So please go grab one of those. And as you grab one, think, who can I sit down with and share some of the things that I'm studying with? Um, in this next season as we go into the book of Hebrews together. Well, in this final week of James, this fifth chapter that we have before us this morning, and even in the gospel reading, we're, we're faced with some pretty tough words, right? Some confronting, kind of charged words to us, some warnings. We've been looking at how we as Christians can have a whole life, how we can live whole how we can, as James says in chapter 1, verse 4, if you remember all the way at the beginning, to be a kind of people who are mature and complete, who lack in nothing, that fullness, that wholeness, that's what we want. But as we've seen, only Jesus can really guide us into that life. We've tried. Only Jesus can guide us into that life. Only the generosity of God can meet those needs in us to make us truly whole. If we've seen anything in James, it's that. That if we want wholeness, it only comes by the generosity of God, by the leading of Jesus. In this final chapter, as James kind of lands the plane in the book here, he underscores the single single theme, this point again. Only God, church, only God can meet our needs. Even in our wealth, only God can meet our needs. Even in our impatience while we wait, only God can meet our needs. And even when we suffer, even when we suffer, only God can meet our needs. James is so punchy in this first part of chapter 5. In the same way that Jesus is so kind of confrontational in his words, because they're giving us words of warning to say, look, do not take the bait on any other way of meeting your needs. Don't take the bait on any other way of being a human in the world. Only God can meet your needs. And it's better for you to follow God and lose limbs than to just be cast away from the presence of God. Do whatever it takes. Fight for it, church, to live whole in the generosity of God, to be planted in divine soil and heed the warnings of those, the bait, those tricks, those schemes that seem to keep us away from that wholeness that we have in our life with God. James drills into these three aspects, even in our wealth, even while we wait, and even while we suffer, only God can meet our needs. I wanna look at this kind of section by section as we go through this last chapter together. Let's look at this first aspect. Even in our wealth, Verse 1 in chapter 5 says this. You may have just, you may remember this. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. 
Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you. Listen to this. And it will eat your flesh like fire. James goes on. These are those people who are wealthy and probably in this context, those wealthy in Jerusalem who defrauded the poor, like he says in verse four, or live in luxury and pleasure, like he says in verse five, fattening their hearts in a day of slaughter. We have to get to this point and wonder, where's this James been all along? This is a different James than we've been reading in the first four chapters. Where's this coming from? Or perhaps James has been saying, this all along, and maybe we should kind of go back and start in chapter one again and hear this, the sternness, the chargedness of James's pleading for us to live whole in Jesus, avoiding all of these things, these temptations that keep us from that. These wealthy that James describes, these are those who kept wealth for themselves and disregarded the poor. They're also the one, and this is really James, this is his big beef with the wealthy. If you want to know what he's after, he's not actually after their luxury or their wealth or any of that, but it's this. These are the same ones who disregarded the poor, and yet the one who has come to save them, the one who has the wealth of heaven, emptied himself for them, the poor, the spiritually poor. These are the same ones who murdered that one who had come for them to redeem them in their spiritual poverty. The one who had highest status in heaven and yet didn't find that something to be held onto, Philippians 2 tells us, but he rather he emptied himself, becoming poor for their sake. This is the one that the wealthy have murdered, Jesus. And for their sake, the Lord didn't resist them. If Christ has rescued us from poverty, spiritual poverty, and Christ has securely planted us in the generosity of God, how could we ever be those people who are stingy, who disregard the poor and keep for ourselves? How could we be a people like that in the face of such generosity from God? Do you ever fear not having enough for yourself? You ever fear scarcity in any way in your life? How could we be those people? A people who have genuinely inherited the wealth of heaven through Jesus. This, you can hear James's point, his pleading. How could these people be stingy or grudging or resentful? Even as they give to God, they expect something in return. Even in their generosity, they expect that actually God's gonna like slide something under the table just for them as opposed to just offering to the Lord out of generosity and expectation that they'll be blessed, of course. They already have been blessed, but this is a praise and a worship offering to the Lord. Even now, I think when we read this and we see James picking on the wealthy, we probably self-select out in our heads, well, that's not us. That's, he can't be talking about us. I did, I, I, I went online, Stephen, I took your advice and went online to this like wealth thing and Stephen was telling me about on Wednesday about how you can enter in how much money you make and it will show you on a global perspective, like your percentile of like your wealth, like are you wealthy? We wouldn't, I don't know if anyone would here be like, I'm super wealthy. Well, I put in like 
my, my income, and it was like, I'm in the top half percent of humanity. Y'all, I don't make like a ton of money or anything like that. I, so I put in like 3,000 bucks just to kind of, for the year. And that cut the percentile in half. You're still in the 51st percentile if you make $3,000 a year. We can't so easily self-select out of James's point here, can we? This is us, friends. And we don't need to dodge his words. I know some of us may be thinking like, ah, so uncomfortable talking about wealth and money. But I think this is exactly why James leans in so heavenly. He's so intense about this topic because the wealthy often don't see how deeply wrought and discontent and blinded they've become in their wealth. And someone's got to kind of rattle the cage for them. Our fear of losing our wealth, our fear of losing our money, the thing that makes us secure, we will do anything to preserve it. We will claw ourselves to security if we have to. For James, it's not that people are wealthy or they're living comfortably or living in luxury. It's that their wealth has blinded them in all of this to commit the worst of all sins. These are the ones, after all, James writes in verse 6, who have condemned and murdered the righteous one who did not resist you. Their wealth had become a hindrance from wholeness to such an extent that they had murdered God in their sin, in their blindness. How, how is that? How is it that wealth can take a well-intended people, blind them such that we put God himself on a cross? James is pointing at them, perhaps pointing at us. But the gospel, the good news here is that, friends, our wealth, even, even when our, we have wealth, we may think wealth is like a positive, right? It's not a liability. It's not something that gets in our way. And James is saying, actually, our wealth so often can get in the way of our relationship with God. And even in our wealth, God meets our needs. Only God meets our needs. Even in our wealth, only God can meet our needs. And it's for this reason, friends, at Res, this is like really familiar to you. We aren't afraid about talking about money or giving, or wealth, because we deeply desire, more than just like the awkwardness of talking about finances, what we really desire is to be led to an ever simpler life with Jesus, a life marked by generosity for the sake of other people. That's what we want. So we decide as even uh, members at Res, we commit to, we decide, we set aside in our finances a way for us to practice this giving, this generosity, not just in theory, but in practice. We want to become a kind of people who actually do what we mean when we say God only provides for our needs, only in wealth. We want to become the kind of people who actually practice that habit of radical spirit-led generosity in the discipline of tithing. This is like 10% of our income we give to the Lord. And not out of like religious duty, not out of guilt, but as a way of disciplining ourselves um, away from that blind spot of wealth capturing our heart and us doing all that we need to do to preserve our wealth and preserve ourselves, and to be anchored in this sense of security, this false security that wealth so often wants to give us. We reject that and we repent from it. And instead we turn this into a thank offering to the Lord saying, Lord, only you provide for our needs, even in our wealth. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Only you provide for our needs. This is what mature Christians do with their money, with their income. And in fact, membership at Res, this is like a baseline for members. If you're a member at Res, 
you said, yes, I do that. And I'm actually looking for ways that I can continue to be generous on top of that act of tithing and that giving. It may, not, it may seem super daunting and difficult to even consider this for some of us, but it's so important. It's actually not so daunting to take wealth and put it subject to the lordship of God. To not report to our bank statement, but actually submit that and offer it to the lordship of Jesus. To say with our money, you don't provide for me, only the Lord meets my needs. And you know what's so interesting about when people do this? We can heed James's warning really well. We're freed, we, we find we're freed from greed and anxiety and worry. And we find that God is actually forming in us hearts of trust and generosity. It's such a necessary thing as we deal with our money. Now, I know some of you are in here thinking, okay, if I do the math though, Sean, let's just be real for a second. You don't know my bill situation. We have all these wonderful narratives going on in our head. If I do the math about all this, I'm going to have less money if I give money away. And then I'm going to be more in need. And then how, is God, what if, how does that work? Let's be straight up. When you give your money away, it will mean that you have less money. That's the truth. And that's actually a really good thing for us. Especially when money is the thing that is holding your heart captive, you need less of that. You should give it away. Find a need. Give your money away. We want our bank statements to make the statement that we believe that only God meets our needs, right? We have to refuse, we actually have to, not just in our hearts, but in our practice, actually refuse that alluring siren's call of a false security in wealth and money. That myth that money gives us happiness. Because you know what, friends? It really doesn't actually give us any of those things. It only leaves us needing more and wanting more security and more happiness and more fulfillment. If that power of self-preservation and that fear of scarcity dominates us, it will always keep us from coming to a generous God who meets all our needs. It will keep us there. And this is what James is trying to warn us so sternly about. Even in our wealth, only God meets our needs. Let's move on and look at verse 7. Only God meets our needs even while we wait for him. Look at verse 7. Be patient, he says. Therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious crop of the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Take, for instance, the prophets and Job who suffered dearly but waited on the Lord. You can remember those stories. Lord, how long? Is it going to be this awful? How long do I have to wait? And now their lives, when we look at their lives, the prophets and Job, while they, wait, while they waited on the Lord, they tell us the story of just how good God is when we look at their lives of waiting and trust. Verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We have seen that in their lives of those who wait on the Lord. Our God is so good that we can make, for instance, simple promises to people and let that stand. We can say yes to something and actually mean that. Even if we're not sure how that's going to entirely work out, if we say yes 
to something and we, we, we intend to do that, we can keep that promise even if it costs us, even while we're in waiting, even if it means we might have to go without something. We can be a, such a secure people who depend on God to meet our needs that we can commit and make promises to people and see them through. Why is that? How, how is it that, Sean, you could say that? Is that just like spiritual religious rhetoric? Is this like positive thinking? No. Friends, we can say this about any obstacle that keeps us from trusting God because God has already rescued us from the pit of sin and death and despair and separation. He has already redeemed us. Is he going to now let us lie rotting in a pit? You think he's now going to like change all of history and do something totally different than his character and abandon us? Would God do? No, he's never done that. He's not even done that in our lives. He's not going to start now. He will meet our needs even while we wait. Even while we wait. And even when we suffer a little bit. Look at verse 13. Are any of you suffering? They should pray. Any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Even now, even in this room this morning, God provides for his people through his church. Are you suffering this morning? Do you remember how good and generous God is? Do you know that God knows your needs and only he can meet those needs? Are you suffering? You should pray. Ask the God who wants to heal you. Ask the God who is so generous, the only God who can meet your needs. Ask him in the midst of your suffering, Lord, help me. Are you cheerful? Are you super grateful for something God's done in your life, something that's happened? You should sing songs of praise. When you're in need, you should go to the Lord because only he meets your needs. But also when he's fulfilled those needs or when you have joy, offer that to the Lord as well. Not just our angst and our needs, but also our praises and our adoration of God. Offer that to the Lord. Are any of you sick? Call the elders of the church. Man, you know what's super crazy to me is we say we believe in the power of God and the power of the Spirit. And we read scriptures like this that say if you're suffering and you're in need, you can come to the Lord and he will hear your prayer. And so many of us go with like bodily ailments or like injuries sometimes in our soul or in our body, and we don't even actually consider that we should come to others with those needs and say, would you pray for me? Could we go before the only God who meets our needs and ask him for help? Why does that not occur to us? Isn't that interesting? What if, what if we came to the Lord who meets our needs and asked him for help, for healing? What if you have sin in your life? God meets that need too. If you confess your sin, James is saying, to one another and pray for one another, you will be healed. What need, church, is there that we have that God cannot meet? This is James, his point. I want to tell you the first time I uh, went and did a confession with a priest. It was a Catholic priest. I wasn't Roman Catholic, but I snuck into this cathedral at lunchtime. I was in downtown Sacramento. I was not a priest at the time. I was like 
working at Hewlett Packard as a, as a hardware engineer, and I was coming to, I don't know what in the world I was doing out there, I forget the details, but I wandered into this Catholic church, and I went to this confessional booth, and it was the first time I'd ever realized that I, like, I could actually go to a, a person representing the generosity of God and like, interact with this person with a real need that I had, especially with sin. I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me before. So I wandered into this church, and I'm in this line of people. Everyone's kind of has their head bowed, you know, bowed, preparing to do this like horrible thing of admitting things to a priest or another human being. And we're in line, waiting to, to, to give our confession. I finally get into the booth. I have no idea what I'm doing. There's this little card in front of me, but I'm so nervous, I don't even see it. I'm sitting there, and it's this awkward silence, and the priest says, well, and I kind of look around and find the card, Forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. And we begin this back and forth of confession. And I know for some of us, we come from traditions where that just seems super weird to confess sin to another human being because we think that if we, like, that's weird that, that someone has the power to forgive my sin. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Only Jesus can do that. Well, we even see in scripture how God has like poured into the, his own church this wonderful ministry of the forgiveness of sins. He gives his disciples, the apostles, the power to bind and loose in scripture. God is not just talking about this gift, this power, but he's actually given it to his church, these ministers of his church. And so as I began to kind of confess, and it was a little bit, I was rusty at first, and he said, you know, when's the last time you've had a confession? I was like, uh, I, I don't know. I've never done this. And he could t- I didn't have to say that because he could tell. The first confession that I give, I kind of started out a little slow, but I said, look, this has been on my heart. I did this. And what was the strangest thing is when I came before this person who was representative of the presence and the power of God with my need, and I began to express that need out loud to another person, I thought, oh, this is never going to stop. It felt like the things were coming out of my mouth were attached to a string. And it was like I was vomiting all over this poor priest. All of this stuff that I'd kept that I'd never come to the Lord in my heart I had, but not actually in this way. It became more real. And I found that as I confessed my needs for God, one after the other, that I was actually the one receiving a gift here. In this beautiful response from the priest, I was the one being set free. I was the one realizing no longer do I have to like hide in my sin or be carried or burdened by the weight of guilt and the stain on my soul that had haunted me for so long. Now I could actually depend on the Lord's generosity to me and receive that gift. We have to, friends. I encourage you, would you reconsider confession as gift, not as obligation or as weird religious thing, but this is one of those really sweet points in which we can come to the Lord and he can hear our need and respond to it generously. And even to your brothers and sisters in Christ, go to one another, confess, make things right with one another, hear people out, and in kindness, give the gift of reconciliation to one another. Our God meets our needs, friends. You name it, our God can actually meet those needs. If we come to him, if we confess, if we put words to it, if we bring those needs before him. This morning, Let's let our lives be planted in that divine soil of God's generosity. That whatever need we put before him, even at this altar, we know and can expect that he is eager to respond to meet those needs, to bring healing. 
And he's not doing so in just some sort of like emotional or intellectual kind of way, but he's actually responding to us with generosity this morning in the body and blood of his son who comes to feed us and to nourish us and to heal us, to meet those needs right where we find them this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. God comes to meet our needs. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.